Last time we spoke about the intense battle for Munda. The most important objective of the New Georgia campaign, the seizure of Munda, had come long at last. The 43rd, 37th, and 25th Divisions all performed an envelopment offensive against Munda, but in their way were the extremely formidable Japanese fortifications. It was a real slugfest, seeing tremendous casualties for both sides of the conflict. However, the Americans were able to break through some of the Japanese bunkers, tunnels, and pillboxes thanks largely to the use of flamethrowers, which were becoming more and more popular on the battlefield of the Pacific. Munda was finally captured, and now the Japanese had to withdraw to other areas like Villa to keep the fight alive. On the seas, Commander Frederick Moosberger unleashed some improved Mark 14 torpedoes at the IJN. He scored a major victory sending three destroyers to their grave, and countless sailors and soldiers. This episode is the Command Team Offensive. Welcome back to the Pacific War Podcast week by week, and I'm your dutiful host, Craig Watson. But before we can begin, I just wanted to remind you all, this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. Perhaps you want to learn a bit more about World War II? Kings and Generals has an assortment of episodes on World War II and so much more, so go give them a look over at YouTube. So please, subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And hey, don't forget about our sister podcast over at The Age of Conquest, The Fall and Rise of China podcast, written and narrated by me. And if after all that you are still hungry for some more history, why don't you check out my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel over at YouTube. Where I got a small favor to ask, I just released an episode on the Mukden incident and how Kanji Ishiwara was behind it all. It's my first sponsored episode, so it would mean a lot to me if you checked it out. Also, don't forget, I myself have a Patreon account at www.patreon.com slash the Pacific War Channel, where you can find exclusive podcasts whose subjects are brought up by patrons and voted on. So, if you want to hear something a bit different, come check it out. So, last week we talked exclusively about the New Georgia campaign. So, today, as you probably guessed it, we are diving back over to New Guinea. You know, when it comes to the big and popular aspects of the war, Guadalcanal usually takes the leading role, but campaigns like New Guinea seem to always fall to the wayside, as they say. Yet the battle for New Guinea was just as important. It took significant resources away from the Empire of Japan. We are soon to reach the climax of the Le Salamal campaign. Things are really starting to heat up. Now, the last time we were over on Green Hell, Brigadier Moton had just ordered the 2 and 6 Battalion to secure the Bobdebee Ridge while the 2 and 5th assaulted Mount Tambu. By the end of July, the Kohan force was beginning to occupy Tambu Bay. The 3rd Battalion 162nd of Archibald Roosevelt were securing the Boise area, and two of their companies were hitting the slopes west of Tambu Bay, while the 2nd Battalion assembled itself at Tambu Bay. By seizing Tambu Bay, the artillery could now take up a good position to better support the troops. Further north, Brigadier Heathcote Hammer was reorganizing his 15th Brigade for a new attack against the old Vickers position. On July the 24th, he held an officers' conference at Guibolum. Hammer laid out some plans to employ the 58th-59th Battalion against Erskine Creek and the old Vickers. The commander of the 58th-59th, Lieutenant Colonel Patrick Starr, received the order from Hammer, but also a letter directed at him. In the letter, Hammer laid out a ton of criticisms against his unit some of his officers, and by implication, Starr himself. 
The main criticisms were based largely on ineffective ground operations such as their unit lacking adequate knowledge of where their neighboring units were or that of the enemy. But as we all know, this unit had not received proper training and it really was a baptism under fire kind of situation. But like they say about swimming, sometimes you gotta be thrown into the pool. And boy were they. Following some rather poorly planned and failed attacks back on June the 30th, the 5059th now adopted a more measured approach against the old vicar's position. Hammer also helped with his reorganizing efforts. Hammer ordered Company A to head further north while Major Wharf's commandos would take over the defenses for Guaybolum. General Savage was assigned the 2 and 7th to help reinforce the 15th Brigade. The 2 and 6th were ordered to advance along the Sugarcane Ridge to clear a way forward, but would run into 100 Japanese in a strong position north of the ridge. On July 26th, the Australians concentrated their 25-pounders upon the ridge before launching a frontal assault. Meanwhile, Brigadier General Ralph Cohen renewed his attack against Roosevelt Ridge on July the 27th. Cohen ordered the still-assembling 2nd Battalion of the 162nd Regiment for the task. 100 men of E Company advanced using a creek line parallel to the ridge, going through some thick jungle. They marched single file, looking back towards a spur that led towards a small knoll on its crest, looking for a way to break through the Japanese defenses. But once they reached the crest, they began taking some heavy fire, and although they established themselves firmly on the shoulder to the ground below the ridge, they could advance no further. Meanwhile, the 2 and 6 were lobbing 25-pounders accurately over the old vicar's position, forcing the Japanese to flee for some refuge in their underground shelters. It had basically become this kind of routine of taking a bombardment and awaiting some screaming Australians or Americans afterwards for most of the Japanese defenders at this point. However, no assault came this time. On July the 28th, another bombardment was on its way, but this one was directed at the Coconuts area. Starting at 2.45, two 25-pounders from Tambu Bay fired hundreds of rounds alongside some 3-inch motors in an attempt to thwart the Japanese from sending reinforcements over to the old vicar's position. During the final five minutes of what was a 15-minute bombardment, it turned into a bit of a creeping barrage, allowing Company C of the 5059th to advance. The bombardment made a ton of smoke, aiding the men. Three platoons attacked the old vicar's position simultaneously. Platoon 7 of Butch Proby charged across some exposed ground at the center of the position. Platoon 13 of Lieutenant Jack Evans attacked the left, while Platoon 15 of Sergeant Vic Hammond attacked from the right. The platoons managed to successfully overrun the Japanese forward bunkers and reach the crest just as the unsuspecting Japanese were about to emerge from their dugouts. A heavy firefight broke out, but it was the defenders who began fleeing for their lives towards the coconut area. As the men consolidated the old vicar's position, they found 17 dead Japanese, but also a large amount of abandoned booty. A 70mm gun with 300 shells, four light machine guns, one medium machine gun, and 28 rifles, which the Australians took greedily. Hammer expected the Japanese to launch a vicious counterattack, so he rapidly ordered the 2 and 7th Battalion to send the fresh A Company of Captain Septimus Cramp over to relieve the exhausted C Company. Meanwhile, B Company of the 2 and 6 were assaulting Sugarcane Ridge, being supported by 3-inch mortars and four Vickers guns from the 2 and 6 Field Regiment along the Tambu Bay coast. Coming over from Ambush Knoll, Platoon 10, led by Lieutenant Clive Trethewey, made a frontal assault, but machine gun fire from atop Sugarcane Ridge halted them completely. 
The Japanese defenders had assumed the ridge was too steep in its rear position and were completely taken by surprise by the attack, seeing Exton's Platoon 11 overrun them. The Japanese were forced to flee for their lives. They attempted a dusk counterattack to reclaim the ridge, but it failed. On July the 28th, with E Company stalled, F Company was brought up to help out, taking up the position to E Company's left. They both tried to assault the ridge together, but gained little ground and were forced to dig in as the Japanese harassed them with some counterattacks. The problem really was that the Japanese were simply too well dug in. They held a steep, narrow crest on the ridge, with the typical camouflage pillboxes, mutually supporting machine gun nets, an intricate network of underground tunnels, let's call it the, uh, we'll call it the Japanese Special, as we're going to be seeing this quite more often in the war. The Allied artillery and mortar bombardments could do little to actually hurt the Japanese, but it did cause them to take shelter within their tunnels, and then there was always the hope that the assaulting forces could get close enough before the Japanese stormed out again. It feels a lot like World War I in many ways. In the meantime, Major Roosevelt's battalion were working their way to cut off the Japanese supply routes to the ridge. He dispatched multiple patrols to take up positions along junctions and tracks between Scout Ridge, Roosevelt Ridge, and Mount Tambu. The men ran into skirmishes with the Japanese supply efforts, greatly hindering them. But with the lack of progress by Cohen's force, this concerned certain commanders like General Savage who began to criticize Cohen for a lack of control and discipline over the men. Savage ordered him to push on immediately to capture Roosevelt Ridge, but in response, Cohen protested that he needed more reinforcements to seize the heavily fortified position. Likewise, the lack of progress over at Mount Tambu was annoying the commanders. Taylor Force had just relieved the exhausted 2 and 5th Battalion on the 28th. Several companies consisting of around 400 men from the 1st Battalion 162nd Regiment were coming over from Nassau Bay, and they were taking up positions around Mount Tambu. Australian motor crews and stretcher bearers remained in line to support their American comrades, with one company of the 2 and 5th staying behind likewise. Moen planned for a new attack, slated for the 30th, to be followed up with attacks against Goodview Junction, Orodubi by the 2 and 5th, and the 2 and 6th respectively. To open up the new attack, eight 105mm guns positioned at Boy Gap Creek Valley, alongside five 25-pounders positioned at Tambu Bay, opened fire in the morning, firing around 200 rounds per gun for an hour and a half. The Americans began their assault with platoons 2 and 3 charging the ridge while platoon 1 awaited in reserve. For 45 minutes, the two leading platoons moved 150 meters across the Japanese front right shoulder. They managed to knock out six out of eight bunkers on the shoulder before attempting an advance further, but the defender's second tier line, three meters higher up, opened fire upon them, and numerous grenades came rolling down the slope. The fire was simply too much, with the defenders using their tunnel and trench systems to deadly effect, taking up numerous positions to fire down upon the Americans. The two platoons were halted, dead in their tracks, as the third platoon was brought up, but it made no difference. A legendary figure emerged from this action. For those of you from Down Under, you probably already know this story, but for those of you who don't, Corporal Leslie Bull Allen became a hero this day. Bull Allen was born in 1918 in Ballarat, Victoria, and when World War II broke out, he volunteered for service with the 2nd Australian Imperial Force. He served the 2 and 5th in Palestine, where he became a stretcher-bearer. He served in Libya and Syria, where he received the nickname Bull for getting a reputation of having a cool head under fire. 
He was a fairly big boy, 5'11", laborer type build, and he had a really deep laugh that his comrades would remark. You could hear him a mile off. Bull was thus one of the battalion's most recognizable and one of its most popular characters. After facing the Italians, the French, and the Germans, Bull was sent to New Guinea. He had served during the Battle of Wau, where he received a military medal for carrying out comrades under intense fire. His citation read, Private Allen's bearing and his untiring efforts in tending the wounded and helping with rations and stores were an inspiration. On July the 30th, when the Americans were storming Mount Tambu and they got botched down, Allen was one of the stretcher bearers who came running up by himself and he carried away 12 American servicemen to safety. There's a famous photograph of Bull carrying an American soldier over his shoulders who had been knocked unconscious by a motor. I do recommend Googling it. It's iconic. And of course, I hope like many of you, I am a Sabaton fan and I would be remiss not to mention there is a song dedicated to Bull Allen and it's worth a listen. I got to sit down with Sabaton at a bar once in Montreal. It was the first time they actually came to North America. Just gloating. Bull Allen received the Silver Star for his heroism from the United States. But as much as I'd like to end it right there on a happy note, I would also like to mention the reality of the war. Bull put on a straight face and showed no fear as he saved the men. But as early as 1941, he was really showing psychological issues. He had been admitted to a hospital in Libya, suffering from anxiety neurosis. Again, something that we would call acute combat stress or combat stress reaction. By the time he saved those boys on Mount Tambu, his health was being taxed heavily. Towards the end of 1944, Bull would begin lashing out at superior officers and he got himself court-martialed and demoted to private. His psychological health, alongside a few bouts of malaria, took a horrible toll on him, creating numerous anxiety-ridden episodes, seeing him discharged from duty as he was not deemed medically fit. Bull found it difficult in the post-war years suffering from post-traumatic stress, and during one point, he lost the ability to speak for six months. He spent his life after the war working as a laborer, and then as a theater nurse at the Ballerin Base Hospital. Bull became quite a popular fellow around Ballarat, and he would pass away on May the 11th of 1982 from diabetes and other complications. He is a staple on Anzac Day and a famous image of the Australian war effort during the Pacific War. Mount Tambu was not taken that day, though the first line of bunkers were battered. Moen realized frontally attacking such fortifications was suicide, so he elected to cut off Mount Tambu instead. With the Americans failing, the 2 and 5th and 2 and 6th planned attacks, changing up their positions to surround Mount Tambu. Back on the 29th, Major Wharf took his men to attack what was known as Timbered Knoll, which was held by some Japanese. He sent a platoon led by John Lewin south along its ridge. They were supported by artillery from Tambu Bay. At 4 p.m., the artillery and motors started blasting away for 15 minutes. The commandos assaulted the knoll from its northern side, but they were quickly pinned down by machine gun fire. Around 10 men advanced along the bench-cut track east of Timbered Knoll and attacked it from the south, successfully surprising the defenders and forcing them to flee. Following the capture of Timbered Knoll, Wharf wanted to press onwards to Orodubi, but Brigadier Hammer ordered his commandos to hold their position as he did not want to open up any more gaps along the ridge. 
Also on the 29th, General Herring for the first time informed General Savage of the true offensive going on, which was against Ley rather than Salamaua, indicating to him that the role of his 3rd Division was to hold the enemy down in the Salamaua area. Likewise, Moen had devised a new plan to drive the enemy from Mount Tambu. It turned out a patrol from the 2 and 6 had discovered a route going from Ambush Knoll to the Buriali Creek, which would allow some forces to cut off the Comantium track, thus isolating the Mount Tambu and Goodview Junction. The 2 and 6 sent four patrols out searching for how to ford the Buriali Creek, going up to the Comantium Ridge, some of which probed Japanese positions. To the north, Captain Edwin Griff's B Company of the 50th 59th advanced to Buggart, preparing to attack the Coconuts area. On the 30th, they began their attack, and they were met with heavy fire around 80 yards south of the South Coconuts. Forced to dig in, the Australians spent the night repelling three counterattacks with a handful of men receiving some nasty bayonet and knife wounds. By the morning of the 31st, Griff was down to 38 effective men, and at 7.20 a.m., a fourth Japanese counterattack consisting of a hundred or so men overwhelmed his position. Griff was forced to withdraw to a village west of the old vicar's position. While this was all going on, Hammer had sent companies over to cut the Comantium and bench tracks using A Company and C Company. Moen reinforced him with A Company of the 2 and 7th in the hopes such actions would press the Japanese to move more units from Ley over to Salamaua. It was a huge success, and by the end of July, the Salamaua area counted with more than 8,000 troops. However, with all of these troops at Salamaua, also required the Allies to boost up their commitment to the area. Thus, Brigadier Raymond Monaghan with the 29th Brigade were landed at Nassau Bay for the task. They were assigned to reinforce the Cohen Force, which was still struggling against Roosevelt Ridge. Over on the Japanese side, General Adachi decided to reinforce Lay's defenses. He deployed the 2nd Battalion 80th Regiment, who would be coming over from Finchafen. However, they were never going to make it to Lay, as by the time they were going to depart, they were forced to stay put because the Australians were threatening the region. Adachi had ordered the Shogi detachment of Major General Shogi Ryochi to depart Wiwak. His force consisted of the 1st and 2nd Battalions of the 238th Regiment and a battalion of the 41st Mountain Artillery Regiment. Elements of the 238th Regiment began leaving Wiwak traveling in groups of three motor landing crafts every two nights. Each MLC had 50 men and their supplies packed in like sardines. Soon, small fishing boats were also carrying 20 men each, and by late July, the 2nd Battalion, 238th, had all moved from Wiwak to Alekshafen. From Alekshafen, they traveled again by night and by MLC to Finshafen, and from there, they finally went to Ley. However, due to increased attacks and losses upon the MLCs, countless men would be left at Finshafen. Some were ordered to simply march overland to Ley, but it was a nightmare of a trip. On August the 1st, the 1st Battalion, 80th Regiment, had taken up positions along the side of the old vicar's position, and they began firing upon the defenders. They were covered by motors as they charged up the steep terrain in an enveloping movement towards Grassy Knoll. Captain Edwin Griff's B Company harassed them from the west, and by the following morning, the 2 and 7th Battalion were able to push the Japanese back. To the north in the Coconuts, Pimple Knoll and the Sugarcane Knoll, more Japanese attacks were occurring. But the defenders held the former Japanese fortifications, giving them a distinct edge. They had turned their tables. By the afternoon, the Japanese were sniping men in the old Vickers in the Sugarcane Knoll region, trying to cover their assault units. By August the 3rd, the Japanese unleashed another assault against the entire perimeter, seeing the fiercest fighting taking place in an area in front of the 8th platoon led by Corporal Alan Nainsmith. 
Alan ended up crawling forward with grenades in hand before tossing them down the steep slopes of the old vicars, killing many Japanese. Seeing the battle going nowhere, the Japanese unleashed a banzai charge at night as a last-ditch effort to break through, but were ultimately forced to withdraw. Seeing three full days of frontal assaults fail, the Japanese then elected to advance further south along a ridge and they dug in between the old vicars and Buckert. This threatened to encircle the 2 and 7th, so Griff's B Company were ordered to restore the line of communications to the old vicars. Griff ordered a concentrated bombardment of 30 mortars before his company stormed the slope the Japanese dug in on. Two platoons quickly broke through towards Sugarcane Knoll and in the process forced the Japanese to withdraw back over to the Coconuts area. Griff then ordered his company to perform mop-up operations as some Japanese had stayed in their foxholes. Yet the performance overall for the 58-59th had displeased Hammer, who now decided to place them under Major Wharf's command. They would also be redeployed over the Guebolum area, while the commandos would take over their old vicar's position. For a few days, the 2 and 7th performed patrols around the Coconuts area to prepare for a final attack against it. Over on Mount Tambu, on August the 4th, Captain Cam Bennett's B Company and Walter's A Company of the 2 and 5th successfully surprised attacked the defenders atop a small knoll known as Hodges Knoll. However, they were soon met with heavy counterattacks from three sides, dislodging them in the late afternoon. The next day, Moan ordered the 2 and 6th Battalion to advance along Stevens Track, while its D Company, led by Captain Harold Laver, would take an alternate path towards the Comandium Ridge, heading north of Goodview Junction. During the afternoon, a forward patrol of Company D found a route through the jungle to Comandium Village, but the route proved very difficult for a full company to traverse. Alongside this discovery, a patrol from Taylor Force found a small ridge north of Comantium that was unoccupied named Davidson Ridge. By August the 6th, Moan and Savage concluded their plan to isolate and reduce Mount Tambu. The 2 and 6 would secure Comantium Ridge to the northwest. The Cohen Force would hit Roosevelt and Scout Ridge. Lieutenant Colonel Charlie Davidson's 42nd Battalion would hit a key ridge to the north, i.e. the one that was to be called Davidson. The 2 and 5th would hit Goodview Junction, and the 15th Brigade would assault the Coconuts area containing the enemy at Tambu Knoll and Orodobi. General Herring liked the plan, and he urged General Savage to, quote, Drive Cohen on to the capture of Roosevelt Ridge, even if the cost is higher than he cares about. Herring also added that he could take Savage's request to the higher authorities, and upon stating that, Savage immediately requested Cohen and Major Roosevelt be relieved of their commands. Again, a lot of the interpersonal and command issues were due to MacArthur's tampering with the Alamo Force. Brigadier Cohen was told by Fuller he was a separate command from McKechnie, and Colonel Roosevelt continuously refused to obey orders from McKechnie, stating he was not under Australian command. It took until July the 19th for Herring to clarify things that the Australians were in charge of operations in the Nassau Bay area. Combine this with a lack of progress, and it was no surprise people were gunning to sack each other. On August the 7th, the first units of Davidson's 42nd Battalion landed at Nassau Bay at 2 a.m., and Cohen requested that Davidson immediately march north. Davidson refused to do so until his men got a hot meal and some sleep angering Cohen. Then when Davidson and his men reached Duali, he was informed Major Stephen Hodgman was awaiting them with some orders from Moton, stating he was to take operational command. Cohen was only to have command over supply communications and rations. 
When Davidson reached Tambu Bay on the 8th, he met with Cohen, who was greatly frustrated that he was unable to use Davidson's units to hit Roosevelt Ridge. Cohen told him, If I can't do as I want with you, I don't consider you under my command at all. It was quite fortunate, as MacArthur soon relieved Cohen and Roosevelt of their commands, as General Savage would later write. MacArthur asked me for my views on Cohen and Roosevelt, and I gave them strongly. I had my bags packed, but MacArthur supported me. Thus, in the end, MacArthur sided with Herring and Savage, and as a result, Colonel McKechnie was given back command over the 162nd Regiment, which had been taken away from the 41st Division directly under Savage's command. So much sneaky maneuvering was going on by MacArthur's team during all of this. On August the 9th, Savage visited Moton's HQ, then Hammers, and then the 58-59th Battalions, and finally the 2 and 6. He was making a tour of the front lines, trying to raise morale for the Australians. The next day, the 42nd Battalion finally got into position at Tambu Bay, where they received confirmation of their orders to seize Davidson's Ridge. By the 11th, the men were climbing the ridge, facing no opposition, and it was fully occupied by the 12th. Also on the 12th, McKechnie began his attack against Roosevelt Ridge, deploying his 2nd Battalion on the right flank and the 3rd on the left. The 2nd Battalion established a position on the ridge crest, repelling several counterattacks throughout the day. After an hour and a half artillery barrage of over 2,000 rounds, the 2nd Battalion charged the ridge and successfully breached the Japanese line in three points. Meanwhile, the 3rd Battalion of the 66th Regiment were fighting for their lives. But by nightfall, two Australian companies were now occupying high knolls, around 500 yards apart. The 3rd Battalion, 230th Regiment, had just arrived to Salamaua, and they were quickly redirected to help the men out on Roosevelt Ridge. It would all be for naught, however, as by the 14th, the Australians pushed the Japanese to the eastern end of the ridge. From a historian who covered the 41st Division, he had this to say. At about 1.15, the jungles north, south, and west of Roosevelt Ridge shook and shivered to a sustained blast. The mountains and ridges threw the echo back and forth, down and out, and the quiet Whitecap Sea to the east, ringing the outer third of Roosevelt Ridge, grew dark as it received the eruption of earth and steel on that stricken shoulder of land. Scores of guns, 75mm howitzers, Aussie 25-pounders, 20mm Bofors, light and heavy machine guns, even small arms, had opened up simultaneously on the enemy-held ridge. A score of more Allied fighters and bombers had swooped low to strafe its dome, and tons of bombs released from the B-24s and B-25s, and they fell straight and true to detonate, shatter, rip, and tear, delivering certain death at that moment on an August afternoon. Those who watched from the beach saw the top fourth of the ridge lift perceptibly into the air and then fall into the waiting sea. In a scanty 20 minutes, all that remained of the objective was a denuded, redly scarred hill, over which infantrymen already were clamoring, destroying what remained of a battered and stunned enemy. By the late afternoon, Roosevelt Ridge was finally firmly in the hands of the Allies. McKechnie could not, however, advance any further as his lines were already overextended. The Japanese withdrew to the nearby Scout Ridge, where the 238th Regiment reinforcements also came to defend. While this was occurring, the 2 and 7th were advancing upon the Coconuts area. 
Captain Andrew Rook led Company A alongside Platoon 9 to hit the steep eastern approaches of the South Coconuts. Captain Fred Barr's B Company advanced upon the North Coconuts from the west. August 14th began with a heavy airstrike made up of 22 B-24s and 7 B-17s. Starting at 9.30 a.m., as told to us by Axel Olsen, observing from the old vicar's position, With a noise like the rushing of a great wind, the bombs passed over the heads of the awaiting troops. Trees, logs, and other rubbish flew through the fall of the dust which now cloaked the target. The observers at Old Vickers observed that it seemed that nothing could have lived in the midst of devastation loosed upon by the planes. At 10.10, artillery began to bombard the area for an hour and a half. As the artillery ceased, three-inch motors continued to fire cover the approach of the infantry who were using smoke bombs. Again, as Axel Olsen wrote, observing from the old Vickers position, It came a terrible fierce raking with Vickers guns firing through the haze from smoke bombs. The Australian assault battered the North Coconut's position, which was guarded by two pillboxes connected to weapons pits using crawl trenches. The area had suffered hard from the bombardments, easily allowing the Australians to seize it. However, the southern defenses of the South Coconuts found defenders resisting quite hard in their trenches. The center Coconuts position, like the North, had nearly been obliterated by the bombing, allowing B Company to make some progress, but soon they were pulling back to the North Coconuts position. During the night, Allied platoons came across a Japanese communication line going over the Salamaua Babdabi track, so they cut it to prevent more reinforcements. For the next two days, patrols and motor fire were harassing the South Coconuts defenders gradually forcing them to evacuate. By August the 17th, the coconuts and the northern end towards Bobtubi Ridge were firmly in the hands of the Australians. With all of these gains in hand, Moton was finally ready to attack Comantium. On August the 15th, Captain Edgar's A Company, Captain Labor's D Company of the 2 and 6 Battalion, took up a position due west of Labor's Knoll. And yes, the uh, future names of these knolls and ridges really does seem to give away what happens in these stories. Labor's Knoll was a key feature of the Comantium Ridge, and taking it would allow the Allies to apply more pressure upon the enemy. On the morning of the 16th, the 2 and 5th Battalion performed a diversionary attack against Goodview, while A Company and B Company advanced up Comantium Ridge under a creeping barrage. The men were fortunate as the Japanese were forced to flee during the artillery fire, allowing Labor's Knoll to be seized quite quickly. The men dug in immediately, allowing Lieutenant Les John's Platoon 17th to capture, you may have guessed it, Johnson's Knoll. During World War II, if you really wanted something named after you, all you had to do was travel to Green Hell and take a little ridge. Johnson and his men dug in on the knoll, and soon Japanese fire was directed at them. Japanese counterattacks were lobbed from their south and west before nightfall, but they managed to hold on. During the night, the 42nd Battalion began using Vicker guns and mortars from Davidson Ridge to help harass the enemy. Around dawn on the 17th, the Japanese unleashed another counterattack against Johnson Knoll. This time, the enemy got within just meters of the Australian defenders. After dusk, even more counterattacks were made, seeing 217 deaths, 380 wounded, and 301 sick Japanese after all was said and done. The attacks were tossed back and soon Vickers' machine guns were brought up to Labor's Knoll to add to the Japanese misery. Unable to break the Allied push onto the Comantium Ridge, the Japanese began to become more and more desperate. 
Artillery and aerial bombardment on top of the enveloping maneuvers by the Australians were taking a heavy toll. The Japanese had suffered over 900 casualties since July the 23rd, and with more and more men dying by the minute, General Nakano ordered a withdrawal from Kibantium to be carried out on the night of August the 19th. Nakano was still under the illusion Salamawa was the main target. The next day, the Taylor Force and the 2 and 5th found Mount Tambu and Goodview suddenly unoccupied and they finally seized their objectives. General Savage personally came over to congratulate the men who took Laver's Knoll, but this was to be his last action in command of the 3rd Division. Blamey decided to replace Savage with the commander of the 5th Division, General Edward Milford. Milford would later find out the reason for Savage's sacking was because General Herring was greatly annoyed that a supply line to the coast had not been opened which was desperately needed to relieve supply aircraft for the upcoming attack on Ley. Herring told Milford that Savage had never visited the front lines because he was too old. But as I have just mentioned, this was false. Savage had in fact visited Mubo and Comantium. Major General Frank Berryman, working in Blamey's HQ, who remained quite close to the man, who often sought out his advice, believed General Herring was unjustified in his sacking of Savage. Berryman would point out, Herring not giving Savage a fair brawl. Savage having to fight Herring as well as the Japs. Savage had done well, and he had misjudged him. Savage bitterly handed over his command. Greatly disappointed, he would not get to see the final capture of Salamawa. But he did not depart unrewarded, as he received a Companion of the Order of Bath for his services during the campaign with his citation reading this. Major General Savage had control of the battle for Salamal from the 30th of June, 1943, till his relief on the 26th of August, 1943. The battle was finally won on September the 11th of 1943. The credit for victory must rest with Major General Savage during whose period of command, the back of the enemy's defense was broken. The nature of the country rendered great assistance to the defender, and the careful planning alone enabled the defenses to be overcome. The supplying of our forward troops was also a terrific problem. Major General Savage triumphed over all of these difficulties. His men were kept supplied. They were encouraged to endure the most dreadful hardships and to overcome great difficulties of terrain. Major General Savage's plans were well conceived and he saw them carried through. The success achieved is of the greatest importance to the Allied cause, and Major General Savage, by his fine leadership, has made a very real contribution to the ultimate success of the United Nations. The victorious won over the enemy at the battles of Mubo and Comantium were due to his well-conceived plans and energetic execution. I would like to take this time to remind all of you that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. Please go subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And hey, don't forget about our sister podcast over at the Age of Conquest, the Fall and Rise of China podcast, written and narrated by me. And if after all that you are still hungry for some more history, why don't you check out my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel, over at YouTube. Please do me a solid favor and check out my recent episode on the Mukden Incident. It's Ishiwato's War. Also, if you have a chance, check out my Patreon, which can be found at www.patreon.com slash the Pacific War Channel for exclusive podcasts that you get to vote on. The battle for Salamau and Lei was drawing ever closer. 
The boys down under had seized control over vital positions, forcing the Japanese into more and more desperate defensive measures, taking horrifying casualties in the process. 